Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop wiggling. I'm not wiggling. I'm just living. Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And for our 44th episode, we're talking to Heartless Twyla about her new book that revisits a traumatic past. We'll tell you all about Hansel Meath, a photographer of the working poor who was actually herself working poor. There's the answering machine, there's zine reviews, and there's something called the Holga Games. But first, Vanya, how the hell are you? I'm doing quite well. I'm fully vaxxed and basically just kind of ready to start getting out into the world again. I'm so happy and excited. I have some trips planned and things are happening photography-wise. Haven't been spending as much time in the darkroom as I thought I was going to, so hopefully I can turn that around and start working in there a little bit more. Um, I built a website. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm going to just start printing my work. First, isn't it kind of amazing that we have a vaccine? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I I feel pretty rad. Not necessarily invincible, but at least a little more comfortable, like walking outside and knowing that maybe I'm somewhat safer. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be great to just ditch the masks, honestly. I'm. Oh, I know it wasn't that big of a deal and not really a sacrifice compared to, you know, literally everything else in life, but it'll be nice to do without them. Yeah. I've kind of grown attached to my masks, honestly. Okay. So you think you'll wear them at like maybe flu season or something? Probably. I mean, I still wear them when I go out and I'm not necessarily sure. I mean, if I'm outside or driving, I'm not wearing it. But if I go in somewhere, I just wear it. Yeah. Um, I don't know when that's not going to be a thing, but yeah. I should probably work on my weird mouth movements before I end up taking my mask off because for some reason, as soon as I put a mask on, I do like the weirdest things with my lips and my mouth. <laughs> it is so strange. I don't know what is happening to me, but it's like I'm sticking my lips out like this and like my tongue's halfway out like a dog. I don't know. It's it's like involuntary. Maybe it's better we're all wearing masks right now. <laughs> yeah, it's strange. I don't know. Something about like my jaw needs to be open sometimes. Like I feel like I have to open my mouth up. Okay. So I'm like full mouth breathing. <laughs> it's weird. We The masks have allowed us to become our true selves. Yes. All right. Well, that's what I've been up to. Eric, what have you been up to? Well, this is going to come as a huge shock, but why I'm also vaxxed fully, that's not the shocking part. The shocking part is that I went out to Eastern Washington last weekend. I didn't shoot a lot, but I did get to camp at a really wonderful spot, a place where I'd always wanted to camp. And I think I have a weird recollection of talking about wanting to camp at this one place before. And it was amazing. It was really, really wonderful to just be out there. I didn't shoot a lot, but I just had a wonderful little evening. You know, that was the air That's was nice. cool. The the coyotes were howling, and uh, there were lots of bugs for some reason. Oh, and there was this weird cloud thing in the water. I should I sent you a video of it. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. It was weird. It messed with me. It was like you know you've seen movies about shit like this. Yeah, it's so strange. 
And I went down there to the surface because I was looking at it from above on like a, a 50 foot high cliff or something. And so I went down there to the surface and I think it was an optical illusion. Mm. I think it was like the seaweed type of stuff and the way the water is moving. Cause it looks like a lake, but the water is actually flowing through it. So oh, okay. it could have been an optical illusion or it could have been, you know, the spirit of the lake. It's very possible. Yeah, it is mm -hmm. very, very possible. Yeah. That's interesting. I somehow managed to fuck up my back as well. That's sort of healing. It's a lower back thing. It's a part of the back that you don't notice until you've hurt it really badly. I think that's just like getting old. You're just, you're automatically, it's this, I don't know. I always say like, oh, my sciatica. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds cool. <laughs> I don't think we're allowed to know what that means to our 60. <laughs> I don't know, dude. I'm pretty sure I'm still wrecked from my injury. And, really? um, but I have insurance now. I, oh. <laughs> I paid up to date, you guys. Wow, nice. I'll be getting I some am. of that soon, too. Oh, look at you. We're insured people. We can go fix oh, ourselves. Almost, almost insured. And so almost fixed. What a lovely <laughs> place to be. And so the rest of the month for me is just super busy because we're taking a month off in July. We're taking that off. But yes. we've still got two whole episodes to burn through. So before that- Watch out for snakes. Like, okay, so I guess that means we need to make a correction of some kind. Yeah, I definitely think we probably have a lot more corrections we than do. we actually give ourselves. <laughs> yeah, there's another one I'm going to mention after this. But prior to that, last episode we talked about the Crimean War photos, one of them being the, the cannonball strewn all over a road, right? Mm -hmm. It was pointed out by a few listeners, this is kind of a well-known bit of trickery. Apparently the photographer, Roger Fenton, took two photos from the same tripod position. One was the one we talked about with the cannonballs all over the place. But there was another with the cannonballs not on the road, but kind of piled into a ditch, very nice and tidy. And so documentarian Errol Morris did a deep dive and he wrote way too fucking much about this and concluded that the first photo Fenton took was the one with the cannonballs in the ditch. Meaning for the second, he staged the shot by scattering the cannonballs all over the road. So it was like super dramatic. And he figured this out, <laughs> it's kind of silly. By there's some rock movements and a hill and it's just, it's, he goes into way too much detail. But Morris and some of our listeners apparently took offense to this, but I think there's two things to remember. First, while this is seen as the birth of photojournalism, it wasn't actually photojournalism. Fenton was not a photojournalist. He was for quite a while a painter, even showing his work at the Royal Academy. So when he got into photography, he shot architecture and landscapes. Second, at the time, nobody expected photographs to be anything but staged. It was fully accepted that changes would be made, like in a painting. You would make it look nice. You make it look like it was supposed to look, not necessarily how it did look. They didn't expect outright trickery. They believed that the camera captured whatever was in front of it, which is why spirit photography took off the way it did. But they were absolutely fine with staging. And so while there were some standards as far as printed journalism was concerned, and they were very standards. There were absolutely none for photojournalism because photojournalism did not exist. But this reminds me of the Alexander Gardner photo of the dead Confederate sharpshooter at Gettysburg. It's, if you've seen any pictures of Gettysburg, you more than likely have seen this one. This was a photo that was staged and then likely staged again. So long story short, Gardner and crew found a dead body that they liked, one that wasn't all bloated and distended and moved it around the battlefield about 40 yards that's a kind of long way to drag a body. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just I mean, thinking about it like, 
I don't know how I feel about that. And it wasn't just a body. It was a dead, it wasn't bloated, but I mean, he was on his way. It was a person. It was a, it was a person, yes. Yeah. So there's some debate over which photos they took first, but it's pretty clear that Gardner didn't just toss some cannonballs around, but actually dragged a fucking body from here to there to get a good photo. At some point, we'd both really like to get into Gardner's Civil War work, but that will probably come in the next season. Until then, we are sorry for the for the mistake, for kind of not catching the flub. But speaking of flubs, we have another one. Both of us mispronounced something that is kind of weird that either of us mispronounced. Mm, what, what's that? I don't even know this. Nez Perce. <gasps> no we way. We both said Nez Pierce. And it's just something that, that's just how I pronounce that. And that's wrong. It's not the correct pronunciation. It's Nez Perce. It's French for nose pierce. Because the French traders saw the Nez Perce and they thought, oh, they're not going to bother learning their names, which is Nimipu, by the way. We're just going to, just going to call them Nose Pierced, which, you know, that's not their name. So we did pronounce it incorrectly. It is Nez Perce. I don't know why we pronounced it incorrectly, but, but we did. Still, there we are. Oh, that's interesting. But thank you to the several listeners who have called us out on both of those things. That's, we do appreciate it. Oh, the French also made the Grand Tetons. You want to explain that? We'll let you look that. <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> Each episode, we pose a question to our listeners. In turn, they call us up and leave us a voice message, giving us their insight, answers, and silliness. And by leave us a message, we mean that they send us a voice message on Instagram, and you can too. So what was the question this time around? I think to answer this question, you had to give it a little bit more inward thought. And you know, honestly, it's been a long year, year and a half of COVID, and I totally get people not wanting to do this. So... The question was, which stories are you currently telling through your photography? Hmm. All right. Push the button, Frank. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. I'm telling the story of not taking a place for granted and the kind of love that is discovered rather than instinctive. I love that. What would that look like in your photography? taking a photo to not take a place for granted. This actually just reminds me of living in Northern California when I lived mm -hmm. in Smith River. Living there as a teenager <laughs> was oh, yeah. brutal. I was in the middle of nowhere and I didn't have a car for quite some time. So I was just like stuck. Yeah. Miles away from like any place, mm -hmm. any store really. There was nothing. I think yeah. the like closest maybe mini mart was at least a mile, maybe two miles away. It was out there. And it also, it was probably raining. So it wasn't like we were just walking there. <laughs> I did appreciate the place because I knew that there was something special about it. It was beautiful. Since moving kind of all over the state and all over the country, really, I've come to kind of realize like what is just phenomenally beautiful. And I started photographing that when I, when I lived up there and I still do today. Hi guys, this is Tanya with Trench Photos and Trench Photos 365. And I guess I'm telling a story this year about 2020. My new 365 project is Faces. And I've started asking people to describe 2020 in three words. And uh, the answers have been interesting. Anyway, thanks for the podcast. Bye. So Vanya, 2020 in three words. Ugh. Sleep, <laughs> food, uh medication <laughs> <laughs> okay 
I'm always home. <laughs> Perfect. Hi, this is Stuart Webster from Sheffield in the UK. Analog underscore Sheffield. Uh, the story I'm trying to tell, I've got to be honest with you, I, I don't know. I'm at the stage where I'm still trying to figure out if I've got a story to tell and what my photography is all about. Um, if you've got any comments on that, I'd love to know um, whether it's something I determine uh, to do or whether it's just apparent from what uh, pictures uh, produce. Um, but uh, as soon as I do find out, obviously we'll let you know. Sorry for being a bit useless on this call, but thanks for the podcast. I kind of feel like this is all you right here. Okay. <laughs> well, when he said that he doesn't really know where to go with it, it got me thinking about how Ray Bradbury, the science fiction author, he in his studio would keep all these little toys and trinkets just everywhere. They're just constantly surrounded by these just little little things, mostly, you know, sci-fi-ish related, but just every little thing. Like kind of, we, we kind of do the same thing on a much smaller scale. Yeah, I'm looking at the background. You have a lot of a lot of things happening. Yeah. And so what he did is he would look at some of those things and imagine stories that he could tell with them. So maybe that may take inspiration from the little things. I was thinking about this as I was riding around looking for some pictures to take today. In my town, there's a lot of old cars and old houses, some of them pristine and some of them barely count as shelter. And that juxtaposition seems really interesting, but I don't want to impose a story. The better stories seem to be the ones that are there to be found. It's what I really liked about making the Hong Kong zine. There was a story there. I got lost. I got confused. I was a little scared. And at the end, I loved the place even more. And it was interesting because I didn't impose that. It just was. Not that there's anything wrong with fiction. Maybe I'm just not there yet. And maybe I should try it some more. I don't know. His his Hong Kong zines were so much fun. You can tell there was a story there. Yeah, 100%. I, I, I think I get what he's saying. And I, I kind of feel it's easier to just let it play out in front of you. Like you might not know what the story is until it's happening. And I appreciate that. Also, I really think that Robert should do like a voiceover if we do anything about the like 1930s. Oh, absolutely. He's hired. He's hired. He's hired. He's hired. Hi, Vanya and Eric. It's Billy Sanford. Uh, to the degree that I ever intentionally tell any story, I guess the one I'm wrapping up now is for my son. He turned 18 this year, graduated high school last week. So, you know, not as active a year as it would normally have been for us, but I tried to be there with my cameras as much as possible throughout the year. And now I'm working on a little photo album of five by seven darkroom prints uh kind of documenting the gear for him oh that's so sweet it, it is we didn't really talk about telling stories too yeah not really i couldn't even imagine how it feels to have your last year like senior year turn out like this and have to be online no i, I can't i'm not like i <laughs> i did not like school i hated high school <laughs> But my junior and senior year were amazing because I was kind of like top of the food chain. So people sure. didn't like mess with me anymore. So it was like things just got better. And even the silly like traditional stuff, I was able to to do those things. And I do feel bad for the kids that maybe look forward to like going to their prom or doing a, a normal graduation and not being able to have that. 
Lewis Photo Van Gogh on Instagram. I don't shoot with the intention of a story or a narrative. Um, I look to capture a moment of time of the things that I enjoy, the things that I do. Um, for me, it's always been the process of photography that drew me in, a, a creative opportunity. And I don't think you have to tell an honest story uh, in the sense that I've done these shows and, and presented my Photoshop-type work um, along the lines of Brooke Shaden and Maggie Taylor. It's uh, just an opportunity to express yourself, what you're feeling, what you're seeing. All right. Thanks for everything you do. Robert, you're fired. Lewis, you're hired. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Both of you guys need to do voice work on this show. Amazing. <laughs> Wonderful. I know. So is Photoshop dishonest? I mean, obviously, I don't think that he thinks it is necessarily, or that if it is, it doesn't matter. And maybe he's right with that. But if what you're going for is achievable through Photoshop, or even if what you're not going for is achievable through Photoshop, is that dishonest? I don't think so. Okay. I don't do much Photoshop. <laughs> no, neither uh, of us Sometimes do. I straighten and I erase lint. So when I took the picture, the lint wasn't there. So erasing it really isn't like being dishonest. That's right. just because for some reason, I'm a lizard and I shed a bunch of skin and I have a lot of dust in my room, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> That's not the story I want to tell with my picture. So I'm going to erase it. Yeah. I've erased people out of my photos. Um, I don't think I've moved objects or anything. But I've erased things. Actually, like I don't I posted, play God or anything. <laughs> no, God. A photo I posted very recently, like very recently, there was something that I took out of it with Photoshop or with GIMP because I, I, don't, I don't have Photoshop. This guy, sometimes you guys. So I'd have no, I have no real problem with doing that. Mm -hmm. If it's, I've taken cars out, like modern cars, I've, you know, removed them from my scenes. I have no problem with that. What about this? Okay. I don't think it's dishonest. Mm -hmm. I do think it would be dishonest if you say you don't do it. Yeah, that would just be lying. <laughs> so you're saying, yeah, I use Photoshop and sometimes I erase things out of it. Yeah. That's just being honest yeah. and you're fessing up to it. Oh, yeah. But you can you can be honest about being dishonest. Like, oh, yeah, I'm a big liar. <laughs> really? Oh, the biggest liar there is. It's terrible. So, for right now. Yeah, it is. All right, we got one more. Hi, Vanya and Eric. Nagelgazer here. Um, I was at a Narentology conference. I had no business being there. And Gerald Prince uh, defined what narrative is. And it's a, a sequence of events described. And he moved his hand. And that can be it. Doesn't need to be a huge story. Doesn't need to be a plot. Um, so that was uh, opened my eyes. I remember getting in an argument with someone at work because she said, oh, this picture is out of focus. No, her hand's moving. So for me, movement, uh, real or apparent, is what tells a story in a photo. It could be a dancer jumping up towards the light. It could be, uh, it could be a, a car moving towards something, a sequence. Um, also apparent movement, so camera movements, fuzzy lenses, things like that. And now I'm started playing with sequence cameras. Um, so I think the, the, the small narrative is what we need. Thank you. Okay, I have one thing to say first, and then we'll get to what he said. He sounds to me so much like Ray Bradbury that maybe you should look into doing a one-man Ray Bradbury show, so like Hal Holbrook did with Mark Twain. 
think there's a future here for you. I don't know if you look like Rick Ray Bradbury, but you could probably pull it off. Something to look into. And also, thank you. The voice is amazing. Uh, you, you don't pay any attention to anything anyone else says. No opinions. The important thing is to explode with the story, to emotionalize the story, not to think it. You know, If you start thinking, the story is going to die on its feet. But what do you think about this? Starting in the small, the small things, small movements. I, I love it. I think that there is an issue with photographers not playing with movement more. Like, it's okay if things are moving because that's what life is. Everything is not just still. So if there's some blur in the picture, some shake, it's kind of like part of it and you should embrace it. And he yeah. seems to be intentionally embracing those things. And I, I appreciate that. So we basically answered this last question in our last episode. So let's reframe it a little bit. What stories are you working on for summer, Vanya? I'm skirting a fine line of traditional nostalgic scenes and brand lifestyle work, which is fucking odd for me to say out loud. <laughs> I don't see myself as a working photographer still, even though I guess technically I am. It just seems completely insane. I'm currently working on a road trip with a brand, and I'm excited to kind of see how it naturally goes. I have some ideas of scenes in my head, but I am very much into just kind of seeing it unfold in front of me. So the story is in mine, but I'm still kind of waiting for it to play out, kind of like what Robert said. I like that. It kind of leaves you a lot of wiggle room. I make certain expectations for myself. Sometimes it's a picture that I want to take and I know exactly what I want to do. Some of the bird wall stuff, like at the green store, those I took intentionally because I had already thought these were the pictures I want to take. So I made sure to get those shots and then everything else was just free flow. <laughs> Yeah. I could never have an assistant. They would be like, what do we do? And be like, I don't know. We're just going to see how it goes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they're a good assistant, they'll roll with you. True. All right, Eric. Well, I mean, honestly, this is something I really don't think about. I talked about that last episode. So with my photos, I shoot whatever I like and then go home and research the story. Mm -hmm. But you can often see that there's a thread running through most of these stories, especially with the homesteads in the West my photos are almost completely devoid of humans. Even more than that, they're kind of devoid of personality. There's very little of my photos that give clues to those who lived where I'm shooting, usually abandoned homesteads or old towns. I'd like to maybe make a better effort to find personal artifacts, like old possessions, hints of a, that a person owned this place or loved this place, that worked at this place. I still shoot what I shoot, and you know, I'll always do that, but I just kind of want to maybe dig a little more while I'm there rather than waiting to get home to see what I figure out. Yeah. Well, I, I did notice recently you kind of went through a family history of somebody that lived in a house and you kind of were going through it with me telling yeah. me, and it was like tragedy after tragedy. It was, it was such a crazy story. It's just wild to kind of be able to, to discover that even just this little drive by town, you would never know. And there's a, a ton of history and it's like a novella. <laughs> well, it is. And, it's, and with that, I think knowing that at the time, it would it would have to change how you shoot it. Like if what I was <laughs> shooting, like I knew like, oh, all these children died and then the grandmother died, the, the brothers, the sisters died, the father died or whatever. I think I would shoot it differently. Mm -hmm. Instead, 
I'm shooting one place, learning the story, and then I can pull details out of the photos that I took and use those details to tell the story or to help tell the story. Well, it seems like you revisit Eastern Washington a lot. So a lot of these places you're going to be going back to. Yeah, of course. So it's a start. Now you know there's certain stories that you possibly want to maybe tell differently the second time than you did the first. That's true. So, okay, what is our question for next episode? Since we are taking a break for the summer, you are too. How do you plan on spending it? (laughs) Film photographically speaking. We'll pick half a dozen or so to give everyone a feel for what's going on out there and who they should be following. We first heard about Heartless Twyla from the Woman with Film Wednesday hashtag. She's completing a book project that must have been extremely difficult. We decided to give her a call and talk about it. Let's give her a call. Hello. Hello. Oh, wow. It's so nice to meet you both. Yeah, Yeah, good to meet you. How have you been? How's your day going so far? Hectic. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's. I feel like whenever it's like sunny in Seattle, everyone just wants to do like a million things, myself included. And then and then I'm like, wait, that's like 25 hours of activity. And uh, this is one day. So, <laughs> so yeah, so that's where I'm at. Okay. <laughs> How are you folks doing? Good. Yeah. Okay, well, Twyla, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course, yeah. Well, I guess we could start off, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your photography, just to kind of catch us all up on who you are. Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, So I am, I'm Twyla. I go by Heartless Twyla on Instagram and Patreon. I mostly shoot uh, landscapes these days, but I also like taking pictures of uh, like artists doing their art thing. I haven't done that as much recently, but I really want to get back into it. I'm also a rock climber, so I take a lot of photos when when I'm out rock climbing. I also have a history of getting getting injured while rock climbing. So sometimes I'll just go hang out with my rock climbing friends and take photos of them while injured. <laughs> and so then I still feel like I'm part of the community, but like yeah, in a different capacity. Oh, and I'm bipolar. I wrote an entire book about it. So <laughs> we're definitely getting into that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're in the process of publishing a book called Technicolor Nightmare. Tell us about the book and how the Kickstarter is going. Yeah. Okay. So the book, like I I had kind of like made a joke like over 10 years ago about how my memoir was going to be called Technicolor Nightmare. And then it just kind of stuck with me for like, I was like, well, I guess I have to do it. When all of this like lockdown stuff happened, I had considered like going back through my old archive of photos and uh, like make maybe like a, a photo book, like a coffee table book of, of old photos of, of Seattle the way it was back in the day. And I was also considering like trying to reclaim my 20s by writing like a fictional account of my actual uh, actual 20s and just like making that, you know, like make it fun instead yeah. of the horrible traumatic <laughs> mess that it actually was. And this idea had kind of been kicking around for a while. Like when I when I uh, started my Patreon, for example, I had like mentioned like, oh, I'm going to make a fictionalized account of my actual 20s. And I think that's still on there as a goal and so like lockdown happens I'm trapped at home all the time I'm like starting to have all of these uh like really intense emotions about like the protests about all the like the just all the 2020 bullshit of like do I die today (laughs) kind of of situation and it starts kicking off my bipolar uh, like 
into into a place that I had not felt the intensity of in in over in like ten years, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't go anywhere. I can't escape myself. I was just like, fuck it. I'm just gonna work on this book. It's gonna like dissipate my uh, my energy. And I was also having a lot of issues at work. So so I decided like I'm gonna take some time off of work, and then I need to occupy my time so I don't like engage in risky behavior. So instead of like going outward and causing a ruckus, I went inward <laughs> and caused uh, a personal ruckus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so so I like took a bunch of my photos uh, to get rescanned and I was looking through them and then I like unlocked my live journal from like 2007. Oh <laughs> my, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my um, God, no. Yeah, like I was terrified. I was like, do we really want to open this can of worms? <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, and instant regret, just instant cringe, instant regret. I've also kept like a lot of, uh, of physical journals over the years. And so I was like, we're going to crack them open. We're going to do this. We're going to look at them. Mm-hmm. Awful. Just awful. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, well, this was painful. Let's turn it into a book and share it with people. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, that's, that's it is. bold and ballsy and awesome. <laughs> Well, I actually ended up really liking the photos that I had taken back then. They're in a very different style from how I shoot now. Mm-hmm. That was like when I was like first really discovering that photography would occupy my time as an introvert better than just wandering aimlessly around. Yeah. And so I got into all of these like lamography cameras. I bought my first TLR. I like had like a Diana that took no good photos because I just <laughs> never put the work into learning how to use it. And and so a lot of these photos were very experimental and I used a lot of expire, expired film. Mm-hmm. So looking back at those, I was like, well, those are pretty cool. And then like looking back at my journal entries, like oh, that girl was crazy. <laughs> 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 yeah. You mentioned that the past year, past well, 2020 has really kind of inspired you to dig back. What was it about it that really inspired that? All the cafes were closed. I couldn't see my friends for karaoke. <laughs> and I also, I, I was also just feeling like, so much of it felt like deja vu. I was just like, I, I sometimes when I'm like feeling manic, I get this energy that kind of goes through my body mm-hmm. and I have to dissipate it somehow. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just like a desperation. This is what we're going to do. So we don't set anything on fire. <laughs> <laughs> is is doing a book like this considered like a healthy exercise? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I would say that probably a month ago, two months ago, I would have said no. Okay. And that it's just like a masochistic exercise in hating yourself. But I think now, now that I'm I'm like sharing it with people and talking about it more and, and meeting all these other people who also have been struggling with bipolar disorder, some of them were very close to me and we just never talked about it because we didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, since then, like, I think it has been pretty healthy. It's been turning into a healthier thing the more that I've been open about it with other people. When it was all just kind of in myself, it was definitely not healthy. Yeah. It was- <laughs> <laughs> There's always been, like, the stigma of, like, if you're depressed or if you have, you know, mental health issues, you don't talk about it. And I think that the last and especially since like 2020 it's just been a little bit more like oh, like people are opening up to like saying hey you know what i have some shit that i'm going through <laughs> and i think it's made my life very like a lot more difficult than it needed to be to to just keep all of this stuff 
inside, yeah. <laughs> not acknowledge it myself, let alone talk to other people about it. So the book is probably pretty liberating. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I feel like I died and was like reborn as a oh. better version of myself. That's awesome. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. So yeah. what kind of things are in the book then? Yeah. Okay. Well, I have it with me right now. <laughs> oh, cool. There's so many just like little relics here and there. There's like a description of a really good day that I had with a friend. There's like me musing about about a bunch of failed relationships. <laughs> There's like just me, like me, like manically emoting and then like depressively emoting. And uh, like, I, yeah, so there's there's just like a lot of random, like a description of my first uh, acid trip. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Uh, and, then, and then photos of like very, um, very oversaturated. Like I don't shoot like this anymore. Like I w had like the ring flash going with all the with all the colors. Like uh, and there's like a lot of color shifts and light leaks. I, I enjoyed it <laughs> at the time. It's such a good feeling. That's why we always recommend people to like print their work and and have it tangible. <laughs> Absolutely, the tangibility is like really different. I, I when I had it as a PDF, I was like, this is cool and then I printed it and I was like no this is better this is mm -hmm. definitely better <laughs> so what made you go with Kickstarter well I quit my job so I couldn't just fund the whole thing myself <laughs> also I wanted to explore crowdfunding as a possible source of income mm -hmm. just because I do have a problem with capitalism so I need to stop working for the most capitalist companies possible like Amazon Google Apple. Like, why am I doing this to myself? I hate it's it. It's very tough to mm. avoid in Seattle. <laughs> right. So so I was thinking, like, I, I love community. I love making my own projects on my own timeline. Like, let's see if I can do a Kickstarter and actually, like, make it to the end. And if this could just be how I do my projects from now on. I love it. All right. So next question. How did you select what was going in the book and what wasn't? Was that kind of tough? Yeah, that's actually why I decided to make a companion zine, <laughs> Monochrome Daydream, because I'm cheesy. Um, <laughs> uh, because I had put a bunch of things in the book that were like way too heavy. Like there was the response to when I got kicked out of my major for having bad grades. There was like a, a suicide note I had written. There was a lot of things. And I was like, I don't want to look at this book and just feel sad. Yeah. Um, and I don't want other people to... to go to this book and expect like pretty pictures and hilarious stories and get something this this hard. So I decided to put that in the companion instead and like have like plenty of trigger warnings and disclaimers in that piece, sure. but um, but keep that out of out of my first book, which I would like to look upon with fondness in the future. <laughs> <laughs> we, you kind of talked a little bit about this already, but um, I'm gonna add a little to it. Which cameras were you using at the time? Do you use any of them now? And what's like kind of your go-to camera? Yeah. Okay. So then the beginning, like, and the book is not in chronological order. So all of these things are kind of mixed in. The cameras that I was using at the time were a Diana Mini because I was, I was a poor college student. And so that half frame situation was mm -hmm. very appealing to me. So the Lomography Optimat, the Diana F+, a few disposable cameras, and then I'm not sure how to pronounce it, the Smina 8. Eight M. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, Mina. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I have bad. I have. I have only bad luck or really good luck with that camera. So, but it's got a glass lens. So it does. It has personality. You know. Yeah, and it's really cheap. Mm -hmm. The frame counter is not useful, but no, mm. not even. Not even ballpark in it, no. It just it just spins, and you don't know why, and then it lands on a number, and you're like, "That's not right." It's, it's just like roulette. 
Yeah. <laughs> Smack in the middle of that of the of the book, I got a, a Yashika D, which oh. amazing, beautiful, yeah. love it so much, and a Branica SQ, which I still shoot with today, and I, and I still shoot with the, the Yashika as well. But the Branica is my wife, so <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> The photos you use in the book, they're from a certain era. To what year, roughly? I actually went on uh, a long photography hiatus um, after I started taking a lot of medication for bipolar. Okay. Um, So around 2013 is like when I shot my last roll of film, which I didn't, uh, which I didn't get developed until 2018. Oh wow! Yeah. So what brought on the hiatus? I got my first iPhone. Okay. Um, that was like the first smartphone, so that was part of it. And then also, I was um, uh, heavily medicated to uh, to survive life, which I'm not I'm not sorry about because I did survive life <laughs> so far, at least. Um, <laughs> but but that was definitely the trade off. Was it just like killed my creativity? And you've started back up shooting. Yeah. So what what happened there? <laughs> what brought that on? When I was working at Amazon, I started having. Um, these weird symptoms that were definitely brought on by stress, but amplified by, well, amplified by stress, but brought on by other things. And, and one of them was that my vision was suddenly would, would get really blurry at times. And I did a lot of like screen work. Yeah. So my vision was blurry. And as a person who's like very visually driven, I, I was like, okay, I need to figure out what's, what's wrong here. So I went and I like did vision therapy and that was expensive. And <laughs> I investigated what that could possibly be and realized that like, oh, it was my medications were, were like affecting my eyesight. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'd been taking them for years at this point. Hmm. So I talked to my, my doctor and my medication management folks and I was like, well, I haven't had really like any crazy bipolar symptoms in a really long time. Like, is it possible that we could just like start scaling back on these? Uh, and they were like, yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that that would be totally fine. You're a lot healthier now. You exercise, you eat better. Like you're not constantly drinking caffeine let's let's try it so like under their supervision i started decreasing the amount of medication i was taking and it it helped my vision but it also put the itchy feeling of i need to touch these cameras and i need to use these cameras and i want to take photos of everything and all of that came flooding back so what was that like i mean getting that back what's that like (sighs) it ruined my life (laughs) (laughs) okay Like, okay, it was, I'm such a people pleaser and I just really wanted to make my parents happy. I wanted to make my partner happy. I wanted to have like a nice stable life. And so when I wasn't creative, I put all of that energy into like building my career and um, building uh, a relationship and like all of these things. And as all of my creativity came back, I was like this, I was looking at my photos and I was like, this is my day every day. (laughs) This is who I spend my time with. This is like what I focus on. And it was just so painful to realize that like I'd essentially abandoned myself for that entire time and uh, like abandoned the things that really made me feel like life was worth living. Yeah. But, but it also highlighted that I, I mean, I discovered all of these wonderful things, too. I didn't realize how much I loved and needed them, like rock climbing and backpacking and being outdoors. So you're an avid hiker, and you have a plan to do a through hike soon, right? You're doing the Sierra High Route? Yes. Yeah. So will you be photographing this? And what camera have you decided to take and what film? (laughs) Okay, so this is the part where I confess that I am an under planner sometimes. And this is one of those times okay. when I have underplanned and I'm really worried about myself. Like I'm like, oh, okay. So I think it would be best for me to delay 
my start date. I, my permit date is July 11th, but there's no freaking way I'm making that. <laughs> okay. So, so, um, so I'm probably gonna, I'm going to try to push that to August. I do have until like September ish to, to make this happen. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, this is like my one pushing back time, um, Second time I pushed it back, though. I was going to go in June. Oh, <laughs> I think I've manipulated myself into the right start start date now. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, the cameras that I'm going to bring. I was thinking I was going to get a, a Pentax ME or MX and just pick one lens uh, and yep. just use that for the entire trip. When I first wanted to do the, the Sierra High Root project, I really wanted to do it on medium format, but I'm just in not the shape to be carrying medium format and only taking like yes. 12 photos and like, you know, in a place where I could definitely still die. So yeah. 35 millimeter. Okay. I mean, that yeah, makes sense for this. I mean, I wasn't familiar with the Sierra High Route. I, I was familiar with John Mirror Trail and PCT, of course, all, all of that. Mm-hmm. And then I looked into what the Sierra High Route was. And a lot of it's off trail. Yeah. Like the, there's like kind of forest along the John Muir Trail. But once you start getting into that like higher area, it's just like, Mm-hmm. Teeny tiny twisted trees that are like a bajillion bajil- okay. years old. You're taking a camera, you're taking film. What do you plan on doing with it or getting out of that? Or, or just why? Why not just leave the camera at home and and just go about the hike? Yeah. Um, so with the Sierra High Route, I think a lot of the people that I've seen doing it have just kind of been running through it in like two weeks. When I was there, it was like, I could just live here. like <laughs> You know, and I, I kind yeah. of wanted, I wanted to share that the beauty of just like all the little details about it, like the little details in the rocks, the the, the the sparse foliage, the amazing views. Like I saw a fire while I was there and we had like, um, we had like fire sunrises and sunsets and like, it was just so, yeah. it was like life-changingly beautiful. Like seeing these trees, like the, every, every single thing on that route is a metaphor for something, you know, like it's just so poetic and beautiful. I really want to share that with other people. And and I'm also worried that like, you know, with climate change and whatnot and like all the fires in general, like that area and, and the, the water being pretty scarce as it is, like I I worry that like at some point it's not even going to be a doable route. My God. <laughs> Love it. That's yeah, hardcore. That it just is. That's great. Uh, okay. I guess that's that kind of brings us to a close. Could you tell folks how to how to find you on Kickstarter? Um, if you just search for Technicolor Nightmare or Heartless Twyla on Kickstarter, I should pop up. Okay. And we'll have links yeah. in the show yeah. notes, of course. I also have a Patreon if anyone wants to support me. Yeah, sure. I go into poverty because I cannot do capitalism. <laughs> 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 well, thank you so much for coming on. It was It was really rad. Thank you. Keep us updated. Absolutely. Will do. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Hansel Meath was a live magazine photographer in the 1930s and 40s. Her camera focused mainly upon the working poor and always had a cynical, leftist bent to it. But to write her off as just another staff photographer would be missing the point of not only her work, but her life. Hansel was born in 1909 to German peasants who were strict Christians. Her father was a failed businessman, and her mother sold goods out of a small wagon. Because of her family's poverty, she was taunted and picked on by her peers, who were themselves only slightly less impoverished. Through her life, it was a poverty she could never really escape. More than anything, she wanted to be a doctor. Her teacher, however, refused to help her. Without his support, she left school at age 15 to work in a sewing factory. 
With both of her parents out of work, she endured it for as long as she could. But she described the work as soul-crushing and quit. While in school, she met Otto Hagel, and soon they were in love. Otto was something of a genius, building his first camera at age 12. But youth was rough on Otto, as Hansel would later describe. Otto's childhood was a disaster. Perhaps not more so, and not less, than that of many German child born into a harassed world that knew not what love was. The people were afraid of love, and in its place taught hardness and sentimentality. They spoke of culture and practiced mediocrity. Otto soon left town, and Hansel, after forging her father's signature on her passport, followed. Both were 15 without any education beyond elementary school. From 1925 through 1928, they tramped all across Europe. Sometimes they were together, and other times they lived and traveled apart. I took odd jobs and then finally broke my arm, and lived in a train station waiting room like many of the young girls and got thrown out. We just watched for the guards to come, and then we vanished. And when they left, we came back again for the warmth and to stay overnight. Once in a while, one of us got a job. We got something to eat. As they traveled, they started a book. It's more than likely what we'd call a travel zine now, sort of like Comet Bus from the 90s. It's also when they began to use photography to tell their stories. As we went through villages in the various countries, we would do little stories, take snapshots, pictures, and sell them to newspapers. In this way, we got acquainted with much of Yugoslavia, Romania, Bulgaria, and then we went down to Turkey. We would look up the names of people in photo books, musicians, photographers, people we thought would know a little bit about life. All of their work from this era is gone. When Hitler and the Nazis took control of Germany, Hansel and Otto's relatives threw their books and photos away in fear that the family would be implicated in the teen's anti-fascist views. After three years of such travels, they returned to their hometown and were seen as enemies of the fatherland. This was only in 1928. Hitler had attempted to overthrow the government five years earlier and was now giving racist, anti-communist, and nationalistic speeches, beginning to sow fascist seeds among the working class. Unable to stand it, Otto left for America, taking random and sometimes dangerous jobs to support himself. As for Hansel, she had no desire to go to America. She was enamored with Yugoslavia, but was enamored with Otto even more. After working two years in another sewing factory, she had saved enough money to join Otto in New York. She initially stayed with an aunt in the midst of a labor strike. To the aunt, this was an opportunity for Hansel to get a job. You think I'm going to be a strike breaker? Hansel asked indignantly. She was having none of that, and the 19-year-old essentially ran away. Traveling through Europe, she had learned an international language called Esperanto. One of the perks of speaking Esperanto is the community built up around the new language, including free room and board between speakers. This is a thing. Esperanto is sort of a language that was built kind of from scratch, simplifying a bunch of different languages into a very simple, basic language that was supposed to be used for international, I would, not, not commerce or business, just international friend-seeking or hanging out. Yeah, one of the things that you, that's kind of cool about speaking Esperanto is that if you know a family or a person or whatever who speaks Esperanto, you get to stay at their house for free. That's just a thing they do. They host <laughs> each other when they travel. That's so awesome. I didn't realize it was this old, but yeah, I have a friend that speaks Esperanto, and that's one of the ways he, he traveled. Wow. Kind of cool. 
So Hansel found an Esperanto-speaking family in Philadelphia, and they took her in joyously, partying for three straight days. Soon, Otto, who was now in San Francisco, sent her a telegram asking her to move to the West Coast. She first bought a ticket to go by boat, but was feeling a little adventurous. I sold the ticket that I bought for the trip by boat to San Francisco through the Panama Canal and bought an old Maxwell. It was a beat-up old car. It had no top on it, and I drove it across the country in the middle of winter. It took about two weeks. I was bundled up. When people saw me, they gave me old coats and shawls, and I just wrapped myself up. What Hansel failed to mention was that she had no driver's license that could hardly speak English. Also, the roads in 1930 weren't what they are today. Much of her travels were on dirt and packed earth. It took her two weeks, not because she was sightseeing, but because it was a slog. Still, by January of 1931, she and Otto were reunited. Now in California, she again took a job in a sewing factory making $6 a week. That's about $100 in today's money. She learned that the girl next to her was getting paid twice the amount, still poverty wages, and quit. Fortunately, Otto had found work in Yosemite, which had been a national park for over 40 years. But Otto hadn't become a park ranger. He was what they called a powder monkey carrying dynamite to the workers blasting out the Wawona Highway Tunnel, taking tourists to Half Dome. They stayed in a tent together while he worked. She fell in love with the outdoors and trees. But when the work ended, they moved to North Beach in San Francisco. The city made her feel caged in, and they put their tent on the roof of the apartment building to be outside. City life wasn't just claustrophobic, it was expensive. Unable to afford San Francisco, they became fruit tramps, migrant workers following the harvests up and down the West Coast. They even took to panning for gold to make ends meet. From 1931 to 1933, they worked with Native Americans, Californians, immigrants, and Dust Bowl refugees. All migrant workers now. They saved what they could. For the most part, they had given up photography while they scratched out a living. But at some point during this period, they got a camera and were making enough to buy film. They photographed their lives. Though their pictures look similar to the FSA photos of Dorothea Lange and Walker Evans, they were actually living the life of their subjects. Oftentimes, their own lives were their subjects. They shot in such a way, passing the camera back and forth, that neither could remember who shot what. As time went on, they either got separate cameras or kept better track of things. Hansel's photos were often of children, not at play, but at work. If the children were old enough to stand and put cotton into a bag, they were given jobs. Hansel would photograph them while she herself picked peas or cotton. We've talked quite a bit about the Farm Security Administration photographers like Russell Lee, Arthur Rothstein, and Marion Post Wolcott. Hansel's work often gets categorized with those, and that's understandable as their subjects, the working poor, were seemingly the same. But FSA photographers were professional photographers working for the federal government, essentially as propagandists for Roosevelt's New Deal. Due to their schedules, they spent a few days in a town or camp and moved on. While they received consent from their subjects, even posing and reposing some of them, they were telling a different story. FSA photographers like Lang and Evans were showing how the working poor were living. They were guests to this hard lifestyle. Hansel Meath and Otto Hegel, had they not had cameras in their hands, would have been perfect subject for Carl Maiden's Leica or Marion Post's Graflex. Hansel's photography offered viewers a look into their lives that the FSA photographers couldn't touch. For her, photographing her fellow workers was a part of life. Picture taking was like seeing. Hansel later recalled. You take a picture, you are hungry, you are thirsty, you eat, and you think. It was such a part of us we didn't think. Their work also predated the FSA. 
Even before Roy Stryker headed up the Resettlement Administration in 1935, Hansel and Otto were taking the photos that he would soon be after. Though they believed there was an outlet for their work, they could find nothing. No newspapers or magazines were interested in the photos of migrant workers. But as some of the workers began to strike in 1933, photojournalists flocked to the area. It was through one of them, Lester Balog, founder of the Workers' Film and Photo League, that Otto was able to produce a short motion picture documentary. He had saved up enough money to buy a movie camera and, with the help of his new friend, made a pro-labor film sarcastically titled A Century of Progress. Lester would go on to make more such movies, even being arrested for showing them to workers a year later. The facts of the next story aren't very clear. In 1933, during the strike, Hansel and Otto were living in a tent with their one- or two-year-old daughter, Maria. Almost nothing is known about her. Hansel doesn't mention her at all in her memoirs, and repeatedly told interviewers that she had no children. Regardless, one night while Hansel was sleeping and Otto was out, the child followed a kitten into the road and was run over by a truck driver, likely a scab who crossed the picket line. Hansel was destroyed. After Otto returned, she left him, writing out her explanation. Dear Otto, I left you. Don't search for me. I no longer can look at your accusing eyes. My heart has been torn to shreds. I lost all I had. My love child has been taken from me, killed by a drunken bum. They used him to do the deed. Our child had to pay the price. We had been warned, but you wanted to save the world. You have made the camera an investment of fear for me. I don't think I can ever take another picture. I feel surrounded by hate and fear. I go crazy, for I do want my child nothing else. She is dead. I'm alone. Nobody can help me. So the details are vague, but it appears that she left Otto, moved to San Francisco, met another man, married him, annulled the marriage, and then returned to Otto, all within that year. And it was a hell of a year for Hansel and Otto, but by the end of 1934, they were back in North Beach, living and shooting together. They photographed their neighbors, their fellow workers. They worked on fishing boats and sewing factories and all through the neighborhood. We had been making pictures of our own conditions in Chinatown. I had a Chinese friend. Some of the girls and women on the sewing projects were Negroes, some were Puerto Rican, and some were Chinese. Some were Japanese. So I was taking pictures of the conditions of the Negro parts of town and Chinatown. Chinatown was really the worst. TB was rampant. 10 or 15 people sleeping in one tiny room, sleeping in relays. So we photographed these things. These women working on the Public Works Administration sewing projects took me along to their homes. Along with numerous other Public Works projects, the WPA had an arm called the Art Project. This government program employed and sponsored artists to create whatever art they were already creating. Still believing that their photographs of workers and working conditions had not just documentary merit, but artistic merit, Hansel stopped by their offices to show them her work. They immediately dismissed her photography as not art. It was social conditions and literary storytelling, which they didn't see as art. So I picked up and went again into my sewing project, the government-run factory. And I stayed until somebody else told me, my God, you have to try to get acquainted with artists, with pool, and they will get you in. But I didn't like pool. I never did like pool, and I never liked to get in through somebody else. I always wanted to get in through my own work and my own efforts. Soon Hansel found her in. It was through another government program, the Youth and Recreation Project. After the director saw her photos of workers, she was hired to shoot and oversee other photographers, essentially running things, earning $90 a month. 
nearly 1700 in today's money. They photographed nearly anything they wanted, as long as it had some tangential connection to youth. In this role, she was like a mini Roy Stryker, except with street cred and a camera in her hands. She wasn't just running things, she was also on the streets shooting. Through all of this, the death of Maria, the separation, the reunion, the new job, Hansel and Otto befriended the local photography scene. This included people like Ansel Adams, Dorothea Lange, Mary Jeanette Edwards, and Edward Weston. Even though it was not at all her style, she enjoyed Adam's work, his specific attention to detail. He's doing beautiful photography, she said. She described the differences between herself and photographers like Adams. Photographers like Adams, she said, wanted to make a masterpiece of a photograph. To us, masterpieces didn't mean very much. What we wanted was human emotion in situations and conditions, but it had to be also a good photograph. A masterpiece? Fine. But... If it wasn't a masterpiece, nobody cried. We tried to do as good as we possibly could. People meant more to us, and the conditions they were in meant more to us than still life and plain masterpieces. She would later address this again. People like the very early stuff, but we didn't think we were really doing great things. They like that best of all because it came from the heart. The very early stuff I did counts more. It's not just the years. It's not just that the collectors go for the 30s. No, it's a type of photograph that grows on you. Hansel's work with the Youth and Recreation Project was beginning to be noticed. In 1936, the head of Time Life approached her asking if she would like a job as a staff photographer. At first, she thought he was joking. And then she wasn't sure if she could work for a capitalist magazine. The director convinced her to join by telling her that their magazine needed a counter-argument to what they typically published. This was enough for her, and by the beginning of 1937, she was a Life magazine photographer making $75 a week, or roughly $1,400 in today's money. As the magazine got on its feet, she traveled across the country and eventually moved to New York, leaving Otto in San Francisco, where he did freelance work. Hansel's work for Life magazine was vastly different than anything she had shot before. She was put on assignment, told what to shoot and where. The stories ranged widely from cowboys to doctors, from parades to model homes. There were times when she revisited her roots photographing transients, Native Americans, and Udwood mothers. In between and even during her assignments, Hansel photographed what she wanted, hoping that the editors might include a shot or two. They almost never did. Regardless, in the first few months of her working for the magazine, she got a cover story, an assignment photographing lambs from birth to slaughter. And even through that, her camera turned most often to the sheep herders, the workers. Her assignments took her to numerous states across the country and into the Midwest. And along with her assignments, she photographed union meetings and fellow workers returning to her old eye. Life catering to a more straight-laced middle-class audience never ran those types of photos. It was clear that though Hansel had lifted herself out of poverty, she still felt at home among the working poor. She likely earned as much as the average Life magazine reader, but felt little connection to their middle-class lives. She also understood something that many FSA photographers didn't get, that workers were not a monolith. They were individuals who, though struggling, didn't want to be seen as victims. She, better than almost anyone, could see through the complexities of the working class precisely because she was herself working class. Otto continued his freelance work and now lived with her in New York. In 1940, Hansel became a naturalized American citizen and finally married Otto, seemingly to make him eventually legal, though I'm not exactly sure how that all worked out. It seemed to take a while. They were afraid that Otto would be reported by fascists. That ideology was swiftly growing in the States, essentially mirroring the rise of Nazism and fascism in Europe. 
All they needed was for an American fascist to report Otto for being an illegal immigrant. He would be deported to Germany, where he would likely have ended up conscripted into the Nazi army or even a concentration camp. Though married, they hardly saw each other. Life magazine had hired Otto as well and were sending them on separate assignments. Hansel grew tired of this arrangement. Home soon became a vague yearning mingled with pain. An apartment back there in Manhattan, a husband that might be home or just likely not. An apartment with a lonely cat waiting for someone to return. And a sheepdog we had purchased as a puppy while on a story in Colorado. He was in a kennel now, serving time miserably, waiting for his owner's return to rescue him. Assignments stringing into one another. Sometimes it was weeks and even months before coming home. Running, running, always running, and thinking on the run. Dragging along a heavy weight of equipment. Worrying about the sense of a story, worrying about cameras, stroke, synchronizer, and film. Hardly time to think about home. Home, a vague hurt in the heart. All around her, she saw the families of her fellow staff photographers being torn apart. This type of work was too much for a person to bear. What she feared most was happening. We were losing that warm, tender sympathy for those of our fellow human beings lower on the rung of success in life. A sympathy that always had been native to ourselves, I felt my heart grow cold and brittle, and it frightened me. Though Otto was reluctant, they moved back to San Francisco in 1941. The magazine had given them a few assignments for the journey west. Back in California, Hansel photographed the war years, Rosie the Riveter, USO gatherings, shipyards, and Heart Mountain, a Japanese internment camp. There they found old friends that they knew from the 1930s, the Akia and Hosokawa families, American citizens uprooted and imprisoned for the crime of being Japanese. Hansel and Otto took rolls of photos at Heart Mountain, but life used not a single one, abandoning the story in favor of nationalism. She later recalled, when I looked at the group of pictures, I couldn't believe this could happen in America. It just couldn't happen here. I was really scared all the way through shooting. Following World War II, Life magazine sent Hansel and Otto back to their hometown in Germany to photograph German life after the surrender. They visited in 1948 and again in 1949, reconnecting with bitter family members who had towed the Nazi line and now felt cheated. When it was published in 1950, the Korean War was just kicking off. It seemed like with World War I, few lessons had been learned from the Second World War. It was around this time that they grew tired of the city. They recalled the nights under the stars, the open spaces, and the quiet. This led to a purchase of a 468-acre sheep ranch near Santa Rosa, California. There they built a home, started a chicken farm, and began to accept fewer assignments from the magazine. They were able to work this new lifestyle into a photo essay for life in 1955, returning to simply photographing the work they were doing. Soon, however, their leftist views and friends caught up to them. More accurately, Senator Joe McCarthy whipped up some bullshit Red Scare and accused any left-leaning person of being a communist. Hansel and Otto were both subpoenaed by the House on American Activities Committee and both refused to testify against themselves or their friends. This was a line too far for Life magazine, such a red, white, and blue American magazine could have nothing to do with accused communists. They were let go from the magazine and essentially blacklisted. Once again unemployed, they tried to make ends meet by selling eggs and with Otto taking on some freelance work, but here they were, members of the working poor once again. They still photographed together, mostly on their own land, through the rest of the 1950s and 60s. We did not abandon our skills with camera and words. We photographed and chronicled events around us, our lives on the land. 
The lives of the fishermen along the coast, the lives of our Indian friends. Their nearest neighbors were part of the Pomo Indian tribe, and they photographed them often. They were welcome to photograph funerals, ceremonies, and elders. And though the photos are strikingly beautiful, no magazine would publish them. Hansel picked up painting, mirroring her work in photography, depicting migrant workers and children in fields. But because they were blacklisted, no museums would touch her work. By the start of the 70s, they were still living on the ranch. Hansel dubbed it Singing Hills, while Otto called it Jackass Flat. Otto died from a stroke in 1973. He was 64. Hansel would live another 25 years. Through those two and a half decades, she lived alone and survived with help from friends. They tried to convince her to leave the ranch, but she refused. In 1981, she attempted to strike a deal with Country Journal magazine, submitting numerous photo essays. They rejected all of them. Then, in the late 80s, her work, as well as Otto's, began to receive some much overdue notice. It wasn't exactly a resurgence, but it was enough that she received a $5,000 grant to help her and her friends organize and archive their collections of photos. It also helped pay the costs of printing for a show in their hometown in Germany. From that, the shows started rolling in, San Francisco, New York, all throughout the country. In 1997, she received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Mother Jones International Documentary Fund. She was formally recognized as a woman whose courage, persistence, and commitment to social justice made her an example for concerned photographers everywhere. On Valentine's Day, 1998, she died, leaving behind a vast body of work whose integrity and honesty is unsurpassed. Hansel Meath was not a photographer of the working class, but was a working class photographer. She shot what she knew because she believed that her photography could make their lives better. It could show middle-class people that the working poor were human. Their struggles were brutal and unnecessary. The lives they were living were almost no lives at all. Her photographs told not just her story, but the stories of her fellow workers. And for all her pain, labor, and poverty, she deserved better than being blacklisted. She saw the rise of European fascism and used her camera in her early life as a way to combat it. When she came to America, she again saw the rise and again used her camera to fight against fascism. As photographers, as artists, we need to follow in the footsteps of Hansel Meath. America is again flirting with fascism, and while it's everyone's duty to be an anti-fascist, we should remember and honor the anti-fascists who have photographed before us. As photographers, we have to somehow bridge the divide between members of the working class. We have so much more in common than our differences. As photographers, we can depict this. We can share this. If we are united in justice and democracy, rather than nationalism and fear, fascism cannot take root. Finding Hansel's work online is not an easy task. The Library of Congress holds probably hundreds, maybe thousands of her photos, but it seems that none of them have been digitized. Art.com has some, as does the International Center for Photography. Likewise, books containing her work are out of print, and there weren't really that many to begin with. The book we mostly relied upon for this piece is Untitled Stories by Janet Zandi. This contains a short biography, as well as the same for photographer Marion Palfi. There's also Women, Workers, and Race in Life magazine by Dolores Flamiano. But that is also pretty expensive. Her photography deserves to be seen by everyone, not just the wealthy, artsy people. Hopefully someday soon, her work will receive the same attention as the FSA photographers. With photo books, photographers can tell a much broader story. 
But with zines, they really have to zero in on it and narrow it down what they're trying to do. We love zines and we've seen so many that can do it just right. And this episode, we've got one zine just like that for you. Vanya, what have you got? I have Nick Toro Jr.'s Sacrosanct. It's a magazine size zine, which is probably not called magazine size. <laughs> <laughs> Tabloid? Full size? Nick speaks about his thoughts on dealing with the realities of living in today's world. Nature, humanity, politics, all of it. He touches on the powerless feeling we can feel when we are faced with all the problems in the world. Are we doing enough? And is it or am I relevant in any of it? The lore of unpredictability and taking it even further by intentionally burning, scratching, stepping on, and sanding his negatives by himself to make it less a pristine object. He explains that he's been fighting against the idea of the perfect image. The zine is set up nicely where you can see the details of the scratch negatives and melted borders with remnants of the sprocket holes on the roll of 35 millimeter. It's actually quite fun. I, I love it when it like curls and has that little melted look to it. I think burn <laughs> negatives might be my favorite. <laughs> the zine is loud and definitely feels like he was working through some shit. It's honest and impactful. Okay, so he has a website, nicktorojr.com, but uh, yeah, you can find all of his information. He has a shop. He also has a couple other books on there, so definitely check it out. Thank you so much for sending this zine, and I look forward to checking out your other things. I'd never seen The Hunger Games, and I assume at some point in the movie, somebody must say, The Hunger Games! So there's that dated pop cultural reference. Yeah, good job. What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I had this grand plan that we were going to do this, like, Holga challenge. Okay. And we were going to call it the Holga Games. Okay. I've decided that <laughs> we're not going to do it. Oh, we're not we doing are going to do it. We're just we're not going to call it the Holga Games because I guess for some reason, anti-vaxxers have decided to take the Hunger Games whistle sound okay. and make it into their weird like code word of like, you know, show me that you're not vaxxed. Oh, for fuck's sake. People are just insufferable sometimes. <laughs> I don't want anybody to think that that's what we're doing. <laughs> but I just thought it was funny. I was like, oh, my God, Holga, Holga Games, it'll be so much fun. <laughs> so, I mean, we still are doing the challenge, obviously. I haven't seen the Hunger Games, but I'm sure they're missing the point. So <laughs> what, what was, okay, what is this Holga thing? I, you recently got a Holga. Yeah, so uh, Grumpy Man with a Camera, Dave yes. Clark, mm -hmm. sent me a camera and film because... That's fucking awesome. Cool. And because of this, I got myself a Holga as well. Yes. Yes. And so we have challenged ourselves <laughs> to use it, which I, okay, look, as far as challenges go, we're setting the bar pretty fucking low here. <laughs> the challenge is to just use a damn camera. That's it. But we have some rules for ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I came up with some rules. <laughs> Let's go through them. There's five rules. Okay. Now we're shooting... One roll of color and one one roll of black and white, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So we need to do all of these things in those two rolls. Okay, so that, that gives us, okay. I mean, if you're shooting square, that's- uh, That's 12. 12. That's 12. That's 12. Yes. 
Okay. And I'm shooting square. I wasn't using the the 645. Okay. Fair enough. So the first one we had was double exposure. Okay. okay. We can do a double exposure. That's pretty easy to do with a Holga. Yeah. Okay. A self-portrait. We'll probably not do that. I have not done that yet. <laughs> okay. Oh, you've gotten a head start. Yes. Ah, okay. All right. I guess, did, did somebody in the Hunger Games, did somebody get a head start? Probably. Uh, yeah, they, they train their whole lives for it. That's not head start. That's just training. I'm training. You're tra- oh, you're training. I see. I am. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I got like my like sweater jumpsuit and I'm like jogging with the camera and stuff. Goodness, like, that sounds no. really intense. <laughs> okay. So what what's the other rules? Long exposure. Okay, I can do that. One experimental. So using a Holga and with what's probably going to be expired film is not experimental? Yeah, I guess that would be experimental. Okay, so just doing this is, is fulfilling one of the one of the rules. <laughs> Perfect. Love it. Go on. And one more? And we, have, we have one more. One panorama. I wonder who decided on that one. You take a picture and you advance it and you take another picture and you put them together. And oh my God, look, it's like a panorama. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I can do that. <laughs> and so you'll, you'll hear all about our trials and tribulations at the next dev party. Yes. Yes. So we're going we're gonna to shoot these. And then develop them together, at least one of the roles. Probably we're not going to do a twofer on a dev party. Nobody wants that. So we will be developing one of the roles and talking about both of the roles in the futures on the dev party. We rarely talk about dev party on this, and we rarely talk about the main the main episode on dev party. It's almost like they're two completely separate things. But yeah, I guess they're not. That is interesting. Yeah. Very strange. Well, we are the people that do Dev Party as well and we'll be Yeah. We're it's us from Dev Party. We're here in the main episode. <laughs> hey, I don't know if you know that, but yeah. surprise. Well, how about it? Uh we're not asking you to join in. We if you want to shoot your Holga, do it. If you don't, I get it. It's no problem. I don't know if I'll ever shoot another role, but you know, I'm glad to have a Holga again. It was my first back to film camera. So there is undoubtedly going to be some nostalgic something something going on there. Mm-hmm. We'll see if we like it. What do you think? Will you like it? I want to like it. Perfect. I I'm going to be honest with you. I Please be honest with me. <laughs> I'm a little nervous about it. And nervous. I think it's like, you know, you lean on these cameras like with good glass or whatever to take these pictures and then what if I'm a shitty photographer? Everybody's well, going to find out because my Holka shots suck. <laughs> but that's the point of Holka. It's like, it's oh my like God, a this is such a kind of photography. Yeah, I, I think you're fine. I, I do want you, I do want to see you sync this thing, you know, eventually. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I definitely will be syncing it at some point. Nice. <laughs> support our podcast you can do that at patreon.com slash all through lens our supporters get episodes two days early that's two days and sometimes i get really frisky and just put it up three days early it's crazy times discounts <laughs> and early access to all of our zines and we do shout outs on the show when we have new members 
At our $5 a month level, you get snapshots, our monthly bonus episodes where we go into a lot more detail about our own photographic journeys. And we're actually planning this whole summer thing. So definitely keep your eyeballs on that. At our $10 a month level, you get to hear full length interviews. Like the one we did with Heartless Twyla. And actually that was such a fun full length interview. All of our full length interviews are so fun. You really, really should hear them. (laughs) I don't know how you can cut them short. It must be so hard. What to keep? Yeah. Well, there's always so much more that we talk about. So like with Heartless Twyla, we talked a lot about hiking and a lot about, well, mental illness and and shooting and all that. We went into more depth on everything. It's really a great listen. So huge thank you to all of our patrons. We just wouldn't want to do this without you. Thank you. All right, so you're back at work. Have you been busy? Um, yes and no. There is definitely some downtime. Okay. Because our, our work is mostly school-based and schools are kind of wonky right now. You just did an order for me, though. <laughs> I did do an order for you, yes. So, I, yes, we, are, we, are, we have some orders here and there, but we do have some downtime. So what have you been doing in your downtime? Well, since I have to be there anyway, I thought it would be a really neat idea to make some shirts for the podcast. Now, we've been kicking around this idea since as long as we had a podcast. We've just never done it. Which is kind of ridiculous. Like, we did do tote bags. We did tote bags. you're a screen printer. Yes. What the heck? (laughs) Well, so for a limited time, whatever that means, we are going to be doing a pre-sale for t-shirts, so basically to see how many people want these shirts. So we have t-shirts and it's our logo on a blue shirt and you can get them in you know, women's sizes, men's sizes, unisex sizes, whatever. We were doing the t-shirt, we were doing a cyanotype print that I made of the logo. That's for the, I think the first 40 orders get that. And for everybody, we have stickers and new buttons of the new logo, all for, what do we wanna say, 25 bucks? Sure, but if you're a Patreon subscriber, you will be offered a discount code. That is absolutely true. Actually, it'll be the same discount code that you already have. So I'll make an announcement about this in the Shh, Patreon don't thing. Tell. Oh, please use it. <laughs> That'll be up by the time this episode airs, and I got to get to work on that. And that's about all the podcasts we got for you today. And just a reminder, we'll be taking the month of July off, but we'll be back in August with a bunch of new stuff. And don't worry, we will have some dev parties and a little extra stuff while we're gone. We're not going to be published anything that we are recording while we're on the road. No, that would be a pain in the ass. So we will be recording on the road and you'll get to hear it when we get back in the next season. But before we go, we have one amazing little episode left and we've got an amazing guest lineup. And oh boy, it's a doozy. I'm so, so stoked about this. So, Vanya, is there anything else you need to tell them? Yes. Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail. And we're allthroughalens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Close enough. Both on Instagram. Oh, and speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff. Hashtag All Through a Lens Podcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode. So check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search All Through a Lens. 
You can also find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and wherever the hell else you can find podcasts. Subscribe to us and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you. See you in a couple of weeks. Hello, Vanya. Yes? Do you uh, want to shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go! That I'll talk to anybody. I, I've always said that I probably will get murdered one day. Like, some serial killer will find me. They'll be like, yes, this is who I was looking for the whole time. I attract weirdos. Like, people that say weird things. Yeah, I mean, look at Eric. Fucking weirdo.